What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, uh, we it is, what is it today? It's May 26th, and we have a few different topics we're going to talk about. We're also going to get to your questions. We have two uh, pretty meaty questions we're going to dig into in the second half of the podcast. But to start with, we have two kind of big issues that we we want to talk about. One is what is happening on Capitol Hill. We have, um, you know, I have mentioned a number of times that we are in this weird sort of era of opacity where most of the... um, most of the real negotiations, most of the real discussions about what is possible and what may happen, those are happening really out of public eye because they're happening largely within the Democratic caucus. I mean, entirely within the Democratic caucus in the Senate and also between the Democratic caucus in the Senate and the White House. And at the same time, you have what is... I think largely a for show semi-public negotiation happening between the two parties in the Senate. Um, and what are we, you know, what is actually up for negotiation? Well, basically two things. One is this uh, January 6th commission, which um, seems at this point pretty unlikely to to to. Uh, come to fruition as a, you know, as a bipartisan commission, as something that passes in Congress and then is, you, you know, uh, created. I think if that if that fails, there is the possibility that uh, the White House will just create one, um, you know, without involving Congress, which they can which they can do. But in any case. Um, that is one thing that is going on, and at least at the moment, unless uh, Kate has some update I haven't heard about yet, there are two, a grand total of two Republicans who are uh, in support of a commission, and that is, not surprisingly, Mitt Romney and um, uh, Senator Murkowski um, from Alaska. And obviously, that leaves you eight short. And, you know, it's it's kind of... Uh, you know, we we could have expected those two. Those aren't a surprise. And there's maybe a couple others who wouldn't be a huge surprise, sort of like a Susan Collins or something like that. You can, you know, you can almost always get in the current in the current configuration. You can almost always get, uh, you know, three or four people, um, uh, three or four Republican senators, but you can't get the other half a dozen. And that seems to be where we are right now. Now, the other thing, which to me is a much 
bigger deal is this question of an infrastructure plan. And under infrastructure, we've talked about the White House has kind of broken this up into two separate things, sort of hard infrastructure, which is the American Jobs Plan, and then soft infrastructure, you know, caring economy and stuff like that, which is the American Family Plan. Now, the idea kind of was that this was going to go... Um, that you're going to do another uh, reconciliation package, which remember is this special path that where where a law a bill cannot be filibustered when it has it, it's complicated, but basically when it has budgetary impact, and that you're going to do this with uh, 50 Democrats and that's it. You, you know, you do a little talk about uh, if there's a bipartisan. A possibility of a bipartisan agreement, but you know it seems like the the two parties are off by like potentially trillions of dollars. So it's it's not really clear um, that that is that that is going anywhere. So we're going to talk about that. And my my big um, you know there's there's another kind of gang or mansion with a couple Republicans, and they're talking about using some leftover COVID money and gas taxes and this that and the other and a lower price tag. And my question or my concern here is, you know, all Democrats are remain traumatized by what happened during the Obama administration, where you get Republicans kind of, you know, notionally negotiating, but in practice, kind of winding down the clock um, and just uh, furthering time. And then suddenly you're into a new election year, nothing's going to happen. And you're just kind of you've been uh, bamboozled. And I've been, I have not been, I have not kept up on every movement of these negotiations, but I have been getting kind of a little nervous because it feels like that's happening. You know, when is, when, when are we, when are, when is the decision going to be made here? Um, and are we kind of, you know, ticking down through less uh, you know, smaller bills that Republicans are never going to support anyway. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to try to figure out um, what's happening there. And um, separate from, I mean, I think we know what's happening there. We we know that uh, um, we know that Republicans aren't going to agree to anything. So the real question is: Is there any thinking? Is there any timeline? Is there any teeth to when? Democrats slash uh, the White House just says, okay, enough. We're, we're, you know, we're going to move ahead. We're going to try to do this with 50 votes. So we're going to talk about that. And then the other thing we're going to talk about is something that I've been uh, writing about a lot on in the editor's blog in the last few days, which is these seemingly small stories around the country where um, organized violence or threats of violence or, you know, paramilitary groups, you know, quote unquote, militias, uh, threatening public officials, that these things are becoming wound up with conventional politics. Now, and, and what I mean by that is this, there's, we, we obviously there's, uh, you know, white supremacist uh, terrorism, violence, blah, 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 blah. I mean, back uh, more than 25 years ago, we had the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, so, so that is not that is not new. It's relatively rare, but it but it's not new. But there's something very different 
between that and cases where conventional politics starts to get wound up with threats of violence. So like there's this case out in um, in Shasta, Cal- Shasta County, California, which is a, a rural county up in the north of the state, very conservative. And there is a recall effort there that is kind of tied to COVID stuff. You know, we've seen this a lot of places. This is not, this is not um, something unknown. And it's not, that's just conventional politics at a certain level, right? That's the, some states have recalls for county officials or whatever, and the public is dissatisfied with how they're governing. They have a recall. That's, that's politics. In this case, though, you've got this militia group in the background kind of threatening public officials, and they are kind of wound up the, this militia, quote unquote, militia group is, uh, you know, kind of associated with the recall. And there's been a lot of threats to current public officials and people who are opposing the recall. You have these like, you know, recall opponents, but they won't, they won't publicize their names because they're afraid of getting targeted by the militia. So you have this thing of, again, um, organized violence, threats of violence seeping its way into conventional politics, which is obviously a very dangerous thing for civic life. And, and I have been... Um, I have been looking for examples in different parts of the country of this, and there there are a lot of them. There are a lot of them, and they are mostly just under the radar because they're tied to county governments or county parties, or you know, often it's kind of vague. Someone felt threatened and they resigned. You know, there's there's uh, most of these have not risen up into the national uh, the national political news conversation. But anyway, we're going to talk about those things. Before we do, I want to remind you that it is summer. I guess this weekend is, is you know, is, is the official uh, lead off of summer. And that means Frisbee, barbecues, picnics, some variation of those things, and iced coffee. So remember to ring in the summer with Grady's New Orleans style cold brew kit. You just add water to the reusable store and pour pouch and brew it overnight for velvety smooth coffee. You can drink iced or hot. You can bring it to the park. You can take camping. You can add a little vodka if you're feeling particularly adventurous. Hey, it's summer. You're allowed to do that kind of stuff. So if you're ready to give it a swirl, get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So Kate, my co-host, Kate, uh, what is up? What do we what do we got on our agenda? Well, we've got a lot, but I guess we'll start with infrastructure in the Senate, which, as you say, uh, things are not looking particularly promising. Um, There was kind of an unofficial deadline that Memorial Day would be the backstop on when, you know, Democrats were going to determine how these negotiations with Republicans are going. And, you know, implicit in that kind of that would be the cutoff on when do we go it alone? When do we decide that these are not, uh, you know, producing anything um, in an attempt, like you say, to not fall into those traps of the Obama years, you know, where you spend months trying to negotiate with Republicans on uh, the ACA, you end up with a smaller, weaker bill, they don't support it anyway. Um, But, you know, that strategy is only useful insofar as, you know, Joe Manchin goes along with it, essentially. And he has been indicating in recent days that he does not really respect that unofficial deadline that he wants to keep negotiating. Like you say, he's kind of gathering a backup group 
of bipartisan negotiators uh, in case this initial group that's spearheaded by Shelley Moore Capito falls through. Uh, Capito's group is unveiling another counteroffer tomorrow, which is expected to be around $1 trillion, though it's not totally clear how much of that is new spending, how much of that is an attempt to kind of repurpose spending from other places. Um, And, you know, on the big stuff, they're just still far apart on how are we going to pay for it? Republicans refusing to raise taxes. And, you know, if we're looking for one indicator of how this kind of new counterproposal will play, Mitt Romney was pretty dismissive of it. So if you can, don't have Romney on board, who do you have? Now, when when we say one trillion, is that one trillion as a counter for the spending for both of these plans? Just for the jobs plan. That's for the infrastructure. Yep. Okay. And and Biden, he he had a he had a proposal and Tell me what the number was there, but the proposal. I mean, at least, I mean, the devil's in the details, as mm-hmm. you said. Like, you know, kind of, is it new? Is it is it new money? Is it just kind of money you're sort of calling infrastructure spending that right. is already in the works and stuff like that? But Biden's proposal wasn't too much off one trillion dollars, was right. it? His so his opening proposal for the jobs piece of the plan was two point three trillion, which then he lowered to one point seven during these negotiations, right. and then Republicans okay. have been around. 500 billion or so and they've pretty much just, you know, relatively nickeled and dimed up from there. But there's a new proposal that that from them that they're going to do that is that is around a trillion, or at least again, that's the that's the bumper sticker exactly. number. Exactly. And they, you know, the okay. reporting is that they came up with that number because Biden said that's, you know, that's a number he could get behind. That's a a plan he could accept, but Again, the sticking point is, is this just going to be COVID relief money that they say states and counties haven't spent yet? That's been kind of a recurring Republican chorus, you know, saying, why are we spending this new money when there are these kind of alleged pots of money all over the place that are going untouched? And that doesn't really get into the complications around that money, which is, you know, some have parameters around how they can be spent. Some you have places that don't want to spend it all at once because they're not sure, you know, when they'll get more money and all that kind of stuff. So what they're what they're in a lot of cases, what they're saying is this unused money is to the states and localities. They're saying it's not unused yet, but we're not like we don't want to be rushed. We want to, we want to sort of pace it out. So in that sense, it's, um, it's money that has maybe not been spent yet, but it's not like it's kind of, no one wants it exactly, or, or they don't, you know, or kind of, it's just laying around waiting to be used for something else. Um, what is the, what is the tax side of this? So basically, uh, the Democrats want to, uh, basically undo, least large parts of the 2017 tax cut, the the Trump tax cut. Um, they also want to uh, uh, change long-term capital gains to bring it in line with the tax rates for uh, salary income. So and so so there you have not only like that's where you're going to get the money, but obviously Democrats have a broader agenda of of just changing the 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 tax code for broader issues of you know inequality blah 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 and then what republicans are saying gas tax and right. something right so the 
you know, the kind of cheat sheet easy way to think about it is for the jobs pillar of Biden's infrastructure plan, he wants to pay for that through raising corporate taxes. And then for the kind of human infrastructure piece, he wants to pay for that by raising taxes on the wealthy, you know, broadly. Those are the two buckets. So to pay for this part, he wants to raise the corporate tax rate. But wealthy, wealthy individuals, corporate versus individual rates. Exactly. Right, right. So he wants to raise the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. Republicans have, you know, rejected that out of hand. They say it'll make America non-competitive. So they've kind of suggested a gas tax vaguely, an electric vehicle tax vaguely. Um, you know, it, so far... Before this proposal, which is uh, expected that they'll kind of push for the spending COVID relief money, their pay-fors have been kind of not really locked down, not very specific, at least in what's, you know, come out publicly. Um, and then, you know, there's also the piece that in that in this internal messaging document that kind of circulated maybe about a month ago um, that gave Republicans reasons to oppose Biden's infrastructure uh, proposal they had in there some like negative polling people's reaction to being individually taxed to pay for it so that would kind of fall into the bucket of the gas tax or any other kind of tax they're trying to impose on people who use the infrastructure so it almost does seem like Biden would be being set up to fail if he said okay yeah we're gonna do that because it seems like they're pretty prepared to pivot and use that against him right to kind of demand a, da- a gas tax and then vote and then they say, how dare you tax our rural constituents kind of thing. Well, and also, I mean, a gas and a gas tax is, I mean, there's various ways you can structure it, but a gas tax is a consumption tax that is fairly regressive, right? I mean, you, uh, uh, you know, Bill Gates doesn't spend, um, <laughs> you know, billions of dollars on, on gas for his car, right? right? We, we, we all spend relatively similar amounts uh, for g- gasoline and stuff like that. So that is, that's something we, um, uh, we know about. Now, what is the electric car thing? Because I, at least, I mean, the broadly speaking, the federal government is trying to get in to the business of subsidizing right. or favoring green technologies. And obviously, uh, you know, car automotive fleets that don't rely on fossil fuels is 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 a, s- a central part of that. So if you're taxing electric vehicles, that seems like a total non-starter. Let alone, you know, for in 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 climate terms. Is exactly. That, am I understanding that? Yeah, right? I mean, and that's kind of why from the earliest Republican proposals, it seemed like okay, here's a way for them to say they're trying to negotiate in a bipartisan way while even the earliest draft of this has proposals that, of course, Democrats are going to reject out of hand because it's, you know, philosophically poison to them. So, yeah, I mean, that's where we are now. And then you have the the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party being like, okay, we tried, you know, we spent weeks on negotiations, Um, you know, Biden was involved this is clearly we're not substantially any further than we were when Capito first unveiled the Republican kind of draft plan. Um, So, you know, you have Bernie Sanders saying, I'm ready to go ahead with reconciliation. Like, let's move on. Uh, And then a reporter asked Manchin about this yesterday, I think. And he said, you know, if you think you got it, then go for it. Kind of daring him almost to to go because you know you know he knows reconciliation is not going to go anywhere without mansion's vote without him so he's basically just saying kind of like fuck you i'm not for it so do your best basically he has decided that he wants to keep negotiating so you know that's and it's it's one of those things where i think the 
a natural reaction is to kind of be like, well, now the Biden administration is, you know, falling into the same pitfalls as the Obama administration, taking Republicans at face value, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's not really the situation. They have almost no choice. They have to show Manchin like, you know, we're trying. And even if they didn't show him, what are they going to do? You know, go be like, never mind, we're going through reconciliation. And I mean, they could call his bluff, but if he ends up following through, that's... Yeah, I mean, that's that's really the question. And, 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 and that is why, I mean, again, it goes back to what we've talked about, the opacity. Yeah. Like, those are the kind of things that is that are only going to get, um, that are only going to get figured out probably in, in conversations directly between Manchin and Biden. That's not something that gets left to deputies or intermediaries or something like that. So, you know... It's possible. What's so hard for those of us who are on the outside um, is that, you know, maybe Manchin has told Biden, like, look, I I need to I need to go at this a little bit longer. Um, I'm not going to I'm I'm not going to let this go through the summer and, and kind of like nothing ever happens. I'm not going to let that happen. I'll be there for reconciliation, but you need to let me work at this. Well, that's one thing. You know, if that if if that conversation has happened, but we don't know if that conversation has happened. Well, and the goofiest thing about me is or to me is like, you think West Virginia voters are going to decide whether or not Manchin is a bipartisan person based on the exact number of weeks the infrastructure negotiations go on. Like, that's ridiculous. Come on. Well, that's, you know, and and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we don't know. um the one thing I will say is that you cannot, there's there's no gainsaying Joe Manchin's ability to understand and navigate the politics of his home state. And we can say that just by the fact that he's managed to, to, to continue to be reelected in what is by many measures perhaps the most Republican state in the country. And when I say most Republican state, I'm, I'm, I'm mainly talking about the uh, presidential margins in the last uh, two, three, maybe four elections. I mean, I, I haven't looked closely, but I think it may actually be bigger margins than like Idaho and stuff. I mean, it's it's nuts, right? I mean, like Trump, what was it? Trump won by like 40% or something yeah. like that in, tw- in 2016. Um, so, you know, he knows what he's doing in that state. And, um, so it's, it's, it's a tough one. Now remind me this. So I thought the idea was, you know, kind of time limit, um, uh, Memorial day for kind of, are we negotiating and then labor day for when like a a signed bill is that was, that was, was, am I remembering that? Or was that second part a little, I thought it was the 4th of July. Okay. That Pelosi said she wants it through the house. Right. Okay. So Yeah. So conceivably that could that could be, you know, those two things can be brought together. It takes a while to get something um through the Senate, even if you're you know, even if you're doing it through reconciliation. Um, but that's but those are all I mean, if 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 uh if that is her plan, that's pretty soon. Mm-hmm. That's that's like six weeks from now. That's not long. Um so uh yeah. Huh. Well, I, I would assume that, you know, in, in pretty short order, maybe over the next, you know, three or four weeks, you're going to have to have a, a decision point with Manchin or else those other things just don't 
you know, uh, the schedules don't work. Mm-hmm. And clearly what they're trying to, um, what they're trying to uh, deal with is, is that, you, you know, after Labor Day, you're into the fall and you're, you're pretty close to into the next election cycle. Yep. Um, and, and your, your window of time that you can use what is, you know, tenuous, but real control of the federal government to kind of, you know, do your agenda. It's, it's just gone. So, I mean, it, it, it is, um, it's worrisome to me. And, and again, I, it, it drives me crazy when I see, you know, people on Twitter or other forums or something going, ah, the Democrats, the Democrats, you know, what are the Democrats thinking? You know, <laughs> are the Democrats gonna gonna do this Lucy in the football thing again? Well, as as we have just discussed, it's not the Democrats. If you have a beef, it's with Joe Manchin and Christ and Kristen Cinema. And really large I don't know where she is on on it's hard to say where she is in any of this stuff, since I think a lot of her a lot of her um uh, foot dragging is 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 performative and uh you know, kind of needless at some level, right? Whereas mansions, you know, man, with mansions, it's a very, it's a very different thing. Um, but again, it's them. It's not Chuck Schumer. It's not Joe Biden. Yeah. Uh, she's a part of that backup bipartisan group. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, at a certain point, you, um, the White House may just need to kind of call that bluff. Yeah. Um, and I don't know where we are on that, but that's, that is, worrisome to me because you you know what what power does um at the end of the day what power does does joe biden have over joe manchin not much not much right he's you know gonna run a primary against him i mean who cares that's not that's not gonna that's not gonna accomplish anything yeah so let's segue into the other thing that the same suspects are playing a big role in, which is this January 6th commission. Uh, Schumer invoked cloture this week, which means it's going to come up for a vote soon. Um, And, you know, the initial kind of momentum or potential that bill had was pretty well stymied when McConnell came out against it, um, which probably helped dampen some of the House's response, even though Notwithstanding, still 35 Republicans uh, voted for the commission in the House. So now we go over to the Senate where it's, you know, very clear that it's dead. I mean, right now we only have Romney and Murkowski being positive about the commission without, you know, demanding changes. You have more Collins and Toomey are squishy about it. Maybe if we do this, if we like what, what is Collins, what is even the, what is her notional demand? Yeah. Her beef is that she wants basically Republican commissioners to have their own staff. She's worried that the staff appointment language gives the chair of the commission, which will be appointed by Democrats too much power, even though as people keep bringing up, it is not only virtually identical to how the staff process went with in the 9-11 commission, the much lauded 9-11 commission, but this one even encourages more collaboration. You know, the other one was just like the chairman will, you know, staff it up. And then this new one is the chairman with input from the vice chairman will staff it. So, you know, and people right. don't like her idea because then you know, then you're gonna have warring staffs on top of warring. Like kind of two different to to like almost like 
two different commissions. Right. I, and I guess that's the point yeah. that, that, that they want it to be so Republicans can, in essence, really have their own commission. You have your own staff, you have your own commissioners, you each do your own things and you're just, you know, it's kind of like a congressional committee. I mean, it, it, it does seem pretty clearly just like looking for reasons to, you know, oh, I don't know. I, I'm, I support it in general. I just need this little change that obviously I know will, um, you know, upset the whole apple cart and mean uh, it's, it's so we know basically what's going on, on, on there. And just before we, we started recording, there's this, there's this story where the mother of Brian Sicknick, who's the, who, you know, the officer who, who died, uh, right after, you know, getting in a, in a, in a confrontation with these insurrectionists. And, and I guess now, you know, after it was, determined that they could not, you know, he died of stroke, seemingly healthy guy, died of a died of a series of, of strokes, uh, you know, with within or, you know, kind of had the strokes within several hours of um, of the confrontation, but they could not it seems pretty clear they're connected at some level, but they could not find specifically how and be and once that was there, that that gave sort of um license for Republicans to say that didn't really, you know, that didn't really have anything to do with anything. Yeah, he died, but he didn't die because of anything the insurrectionists did. And ergo, uh, we who who gave you know aid and comfort to the insurrection that's not you know that's not our problem. But now his mother is basically asking for meetings with all of the I don't know if it's all the Republican senators or all the Republican senators who you know conceivably you know, might be people who would support the commission and wants to talk with them. Now, that obviously creates a, a a pretty uncomfortable dynamic, I would think, for a lot of them, because uh, I think her presence, I think, sort of short circuits the Republican desire to say that his death just is tragic, but has nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with the insurrection. It's just sort of like just someone who died. Um, and clearly, it would seem that that is not the mother's perspective. So, do we do we do do we have any more sense of what's what's going on with with this new development? I mean, my kind of initial reaction is just they're going to dodge her the way they dodged, um, you know, Michael Fanone, who's the other officer yeah. who's been specifically seeking a meeting with Kevin McCarthy, who has just ignored him, totally ignored him, you know, and we've kind of seen little blips like this in the, in throughout the process. The other kind of big one was this letter comes out on a Capitol police letterhead of, you know, very raw emotional outrage at the, you know, Republican dismissiveness for the need for the commission and what that, implicitly says about their feelings towards the officers who were there, those who died, those who were injured, those who were still kind of grappling with how terrible the day was. Um, and it got a ton of attention. Does that Fanon, uh, uh, that one officer, is he still on the force or is he like on the force, but maybe um, not actively on the force because he's still recovering from his injuries? What is his status? He's still on the force to to my knowledge. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, he had a heart attack and a concussion during the insurrection. So he's kind of right. become the mouthpiece for what is clearly still, you know, considerable anger among the force, even though that letter ended up not being officially sanctioned or, you know, from 
the force in, in its whole. It was basically just some officers who got their hands on letterhead is what it seems. Right, 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 right. But yeah, I mean, I just as almost incredible as it is to suggest that a lawmaker would just kind of blow off the mother of an officer who died protecting them, you know, even mm-hmm. who died in even if you want to be so semantic about it, who died in the days after the insurrection. But to her, she sees those as connected and she sees uh, what he did as basically dying to protect them to just like blow her off. I mean, yeah, yeah. it also that kind of shows, though, the what Congress looks like now versus what it looked like before, because pretty much the one guaranteed thing you could count on is that Republican lawmakers were going to go out of their way to show, you know, ultimate deference and respect to the law enforcement entities, you know, the the military police. That's always what that was our bread and butter, you know, like we're the patriotic mm-hmm. party. We everything we do is kind of in respect of these people. Um, but now that's become trickier political calculus. It's it's also that has also been that has long been a thing, except when it's not a thing. If you go back to the 90s, um, one of the big things was uh, on the right was vilifying federal law enforcement, ATF, um, you know, the FBI, a- ATF, you know, there was this notorious uh, um, NRA uh, ad campaign about jackbooted thugs, you know, federal law enforcement. And th- that gets into the, you know, the stuff out West and all these, you know, these things. But um Republicans have certainly the right of the Republican Party has and like, you know, NRA types and stuff like that have a long history with being totally able to be totally pro law enforcement, except law enforcement that, you know, crosses their um, does things or says things or supports things that that is in conflict with them. So they're there, you know, they've they've uh, they've got experience with that. They know how to they know how to handle that. Right. And so and then the other piece just of this situation, a little bit different uh, from the Sitnik angle. But, you know, Manchin was specifically asked if Republicans do filibuster the commission bill, which it seems likely is going to be their first, you know, successful yeah. filibuster of this term. Um, you know, are you do anything about it? Is that going to push you to change the filibuster rules? And he said, no, 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 no. I'm still insisting on maintaining the 60 vote threshold. That would be, you know. That would be terrible, but I'm not actually going to do anything about he, it. He and Cinema put out this statement mm-hmm. that I think kind of captures the the um, captures the the essence of the situation. They put uh, the two of them put out this statement to their Republican colleagues, basically begging them, please support this, please, 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 and also please support this, and um, which. Uh, I think they do want them to support this, but it does uh, throw into very stark relief that absent the, you know, absent their support for the filibuster, this would not be an issue. You know, it is entirely, it is entirely at their sufferance, the two of their sufferance. Now there's a little bit more, you know, we've talked about before, there are other Senate Democrats who probably really don't want to kind of bite that bullet, but the fact that they're not able, they are not willing to kind of put their name on it, I think tells you that they would probably, they'd fold if, you know, if, if it was going to happen. So, um, you know, there we are. And I, I'm still curious, uh, 
if there is going to be some point where Senate Democrats in some more direct way and more public way, way basically said to Joe Manchin, kind of like, dude, <laughs> here's your by, you know, who are you blaming now? Because, you know, there, there there's sort of implicit in everything that Joe Manchin says is this idea that, you know, there's not bipartisanship because we're not trying hard enough. We Democrats aren't trying hard enough. You Republicans aren't trying hard enough. As Americans, we're not trying hard enough, blah, 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 blah. Um, but what the White House, what Joe Biden, what Chuck Schumer is doing is kind of like, okay, show us how it's done, dude. You know, le you lead the way. You lead the way and you find the bipartisan compromises. Um, and it's all, you know, it's funny. I mean, the I mean, we know why they're not doing it, but... It, it's interesting to hypothesize an alternative universe where Republicans say, "Okay, let's let's get some compromises so we can, you know, so we can kind of throw the Democrats a little off off balance." To, to, that we can say, you know, that Joe Manchin can say, "Hey, I got the I got the bipartisan compromise on the on the January sixth commission, or I got the bipartisan compromise on the hard infrastructure plan, and and the fact that you know he was able to get the compromise there means that the uh, you know that that the caring economy infrastructure plan goes down because all that, but no, it's just no to everything, and um, and that leaves Joe Manchin just sort of there, kind of without an argument. Yeah. But not clear he needs an argument because, you know, he's he holds the card. Right. OK, let's uh, let's move on to the kind of militia state violence uh, somewhat quickly and then we can get into our questions. We are, as usual, running out of road. Too much to talk about. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think maybe the, the main thing is, you know, if you if you've seen these posts I've been doing, you've got, you know, you've got this like militia recall up in Shasta County, California. You've got um, th this situation where. Uh, the, the there's like a Proud Boys faction in the in the Republican Party of Nevada trying to take over the you know take over the GOP and um, there's lots of there, there's really been a, a a a a large number of cases over the last six or seven months of public officials just in this state and that state just resigning because they're they're afraid they're going to get killed. By, by, you know, kind of anti-mask activists. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one one example of this that I wrote about a couple days ago is this guy who was, um, I don't remember the exact, he's the secretary, he was the secretary of some department in the New Mexico government, Democratic administration. I don't, I don't remember exactly what department, but it was, it was a department that had contact with COVID stuff. Not so much the healthcare side of it, but masking and, you know, lockdowns or something like this. And uh, he resigned, uh, I don't know, a couple weeks ago or something like that. And there was a lot of questions like, why did he resign? Was he fired? You know, what happened? And then a few days ago, he came forward. He's like, I resigned because I was, I was, you know, I was getting so many death threats and threats to my family that I just didn't feel safe anymore. And not only did he resign, he's moving out of the state. Right. He's leaving the state. And like I'm laughing, kind of, you know, dark humor. But I mean, that kind of tells you the story. So 
I, I think um, since, since we're running a little low on time, I'll just say keep an eye out in your area. What are you seeing in your area that might be like this? And if you see stuff, and especially if it's not really um, you know, getting attention nationwide, shoot us an email. Talk at talkingpointsmemo.com because we're trying to we're trying to pull together these stories from around the country because as as is often the case with uh, things that develop like this, you've got a lot of things happening just below the national radar. Um, you know, it, in many cases, it's threatened violence, not actual violence, and you know, not to be uh, uh, brutal about it, but. For, to get a news story, you need someone actually to get killed, right? Not just someone leaving, you know, kind of uh, phone calls or something like that and threatening. So, in any case, if you see examples, drop us a line because we're really trying to kind of pull this together and and tell this story. I would say on this note, um, I've been reporting out a story that we'll probably have up later today about um, a county level official in Orange County, California, who has become the subject of these kind of threats, who's got protesters coming to her house. Uh, that happened to a health official on the county level a few weeks ago and a year ago made one county health official kind of become the first uh, to really quit because of the kind of outpouring of vitriol over her mask mandate. And she was getting death threats and everything. And you know, the only reason that we came across that story is because a reader flagged it, sent it into us. So, you know, we'd we really appreciate those tips and they do kind of help us bring this lower level stuff to a, a bigger audience. And one thing for, for, for people to understand is that, you know, historically, Orange County, California, you know, very conservative, mm -hmm. you know, kind of the base of, of the conservative movement in California. But that's no longer the case. It is not it, it's it's not democratic quite yet. I mean, it, it I think that um, I think that in 2018, all of the, I believe, all of the uh, House seats in 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 Orange County went to Democrats. I think that that Republicans clawed back maybe one or two of those in in 2020. But the point is, it is it has become much bluer. It is basically Democratic, although not you know not uh, not 100. percent I think uh, Biden you know won pretty handily there. So in a lot of these cases, it's you know it's not like we're talking about things happening like in Idaho or West Virginia, often it's cases where a political jurisdiction bestrides a, you know, a blue urban suburban area and then a kind of a, a redder rural area or cases like this where certainly um, Trump types are very much in the minority in Orange County. You know, Republicans couldn't win House seats, but they're moderate Republicans, at least by, you know, by, by current standards. Um, and so you have just these very uh, impassioned, uh, you know, violence adjacent Republicans menacing public officials. And if you think about it, that makes sense because if you're in the majority, you don't have to threaten people with violence. You just vote them out, right? It, it's, it's when you're not that you get into into doing this kind of stuff. So keep your eyes out and let us know what you see. Right. Okay. So now we're going to transition to questions. Thank you, everyone who sent them in. Uh, we still have a backlog, and you know we we might get to them in future episodes. Um, but our first one is about a totally different story that's kind of broken new ground recently. So 
Um, this is from Richard, who says, I'm seeing indications on Twitter and elsewhere that the lab leak hypothesis about COVID-19 may be getting viewed more favorably. Uh, frankly, I'm too busy with everyday life right now to look into this. What do your trusted sources say? Uh, so just to give some context to kind of what's changed there, um, it's came or the Wall Street Journal is the one who reported that um, a previously undisclosed intelligence report suggests that three researchers who worked in the lab in Wuhan, you know, where they were studying, uh, you know, different strains of the virus and everything like that. Three of them were sick enough to be hospitalized in fall of 2019, which takes things a step further than what we knew from mid-January, where a State Department report released that researchers from inside the lab had fallen sick in, in the fall of 2019, um, though that report also said their symptoms were consistent both with COVID and with seasonal illness. So there was a little blurriness there, even though that was a step further from what was kind of the Chinese party line, which is that, you know, no one had come into contact with the disease until the very end of December. So we've kind of had shifting knowledge on this ground, but this new tidbit suggests that if researchers within the lab felt ill enough in fall of 2019 to be hospitalized, that's an important kind of link in the chain that we didn't know before. Yeah, I think, you know, to me, I think it's important to distinguish two different dimensions of this story. One is that, they, and, and even that I want to emphasize, you know, intelligence report. Intelligence reports, you know, sometimes they're accurate, sometimes they're, you know, disinformation themselves. But there's, so there's two dimensions. One is that we do have some of what might be called new evidence, new evidence that points in this direction. Not, there's really not a lot of it, but let's just kind of categorically describe it. One part of it is things, you know, kind of new information. The other is uh, something uh, different. And, 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 and that is that we have never known how this originated. Generally speaking, novel diseases jump across lines of species, and that's where they come from. And there is a long, not just long, uh, there's, you know, thousands, millions of year history of this. And the resistance to this theory, going back to the, the very beginning uh, of, of the COVID epidemic, I think to a great extent was based on there being no evidence for it. And yet, people with strong political motivations started making accusations really with no evidence at all. And that created, I mean, you know, if you go back to the very beginning of COVID, you had a number of Republican senators saying, you know, this is probably like a a Chinese bioweapon. Right. Intentionally released on the world or a bioweapon that, you know, was created as a bioweapon and maybe they didn't want to release it then, but they did and blah, 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 blah. Now, there are ways that scientists can fairly easily detect an an engineered virus. And from the very beginning, almost all the people who do genomic studies of this have said, no, that's just not what this looks like. But that doesn't rule out that you're just doing some experimenting with a naturally occurring virus and you and it leaks from your lab. 
or you're kind of, you know, fiddling with it in an experiment and it leaks from the lab. So I think there is there is some misunderstanding and to an extent intentional misunderstanding about, oh, you know, this they said it was definitely not true and now everybody's reconsidering. A lot of that is 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 not really so clear cut. I don't know anybody in in this field who was saying last year it's impossible that this happened. What they're saying was, we don't have evidence that it happened. So don't run around saying you know it happened when you have no evidence for it. Um, so there's that. And I think that is the, 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 the unfocused on part of the story. The other part of it, though, is that, you know, there are some hints like Kate described. The other thing, though, too, is that when, when something like this jumps, you know, from one species to humans, there's usually a, uh, you know, you know there, there's links in the chain. Well, it went from bats to this intermediate animal, and then that animal was near humans, and it went to humans. And they have not found what that intermediate animal was or how that happened. And without finding that, I mean, if you found that, you could say, okay, we see how it happened. And we don't have any need for this lab leak explanation because we know how it happened. They haven't found that. So, so you have these, you know, these things coming together. And the reality is the Chinese government has basically not been forthcoming about anything. Right. And that does raise questions. Although... There's nothing that the that the Chinese government is forthcoming about. That's their system. They're never forthcoming. They're never transparent about anything. So it's, you know, it's it's uh we don't know. Yeah, I think the primary problem is that the source of COVID, you know, where it came from has been uncertain from the beginning. You know, we've pretty much never known. Um and then you had kind of bad actors like Trump or like Tom Cotton conflating the idea of uh an accidental leak with a purposeful bioweapon. So then you had, you know, I I do think like well-meaning media outlets trying to, you know, turn down the temperature and and denounce that as a conspiracy theory, but you had this kind of reasonable hypothesis conflated with this like inflammatory accusation and then they ended up getting debunked as one even though they're two separate right. entities and then it's just you know on top of that it's hard because when you your messengers are Trump and Mike Pompeo who are also really infusing these um arguments with like you know pretty severe and racist anti-chinese rhetoric which you know as we saw throughout the pandemic has manifested in real you know upticks in anti-Asian violence, then it also becomes more difficult to take what they say at face value because these are people who've shown themselves very comfortable with repeating conspiracy theories and repeating lies. So I think people are being very hard on people who kind of dismiss those arguments outright as conspiracy theories, you know, or as kind of a tool, an anti-Chinese propaganda tool. But these people that we were hearing this from, that's what they always did, you know? So I think there was definitely a mistake in saying those things are definitely not true or debunked out of hand. But I think that was an attempt to check the usual kind of lying we get from these people. I'm I'm not even sure it would that was a mistake. I mean, you know, different people said different things, but if you look most of these cases, it was it was um, even the people who supposedly said it was fake. What they actually said is very unlikely, no evidence for it. And I think I, I have a slightly different take on this, which is that through 2020, Trump, 
Pompeo, their political allies, started pushing this in tandem to when they were getting more and more criticism for botching the pandemic. So this was their response when people said, oh, your, your response has been a disaster. They said, it's not me. This was a Chinese attack on us. So you had people with very clear and very dishonest political motives claiming something that they had very little evidence for and still have very little evidence for. And I think that one of the changes is that when you no longer have the president of the United States claiming something like that and and and, and that is that is that there's no evidence for there's a little less sense of like okay yeah we should look into this so that that has changed but again I I, I want to come back to this to this to this point because it 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 gets it gets really um, it gets lost in a lot of these conversations about disinformation and conspiracy theories and stuff like that, if you were shouting at the top of your lungs, I know this is true. This happened. These people did this thing to us. And you have no evidence for it at all. You have no evidence for it. That is not a that is not a hypothesis that may conceivably be true. You're lying. You're lying because you have no evidence for it. So I think it's important that we remember, yeah, it's possible it's true, but when you're claiming you know it's true, when you're claiming you have evidence for it and you don't, that's lying. So <laughs> if it ends up that you know, 10 years from now in some different political environment, uh, the Chinese government says, hey, we found out we did this, you know, it leaked out of our lab, our bad. That won't mean that Trump was telling the truth. It means that the thing he lied about for his own political motives turned out to be true, kind of by accident. And I, I really think it's important to to remember this because, again, um, if you claim things, lots of things could be true. If you if you claim you know they're true and claim you have evidence when you don't, that's lying. That's not maybe telling the truth, subject to you know to to there being evidence at some future point. Anyway, that's my soapbox. Yeah. So either way, you know. It seems pretty unlikely we're going to know for sure in any solid way because, like you mentioned, the Chinese government has been very uncooperative uh, with, you know, they haven't, they won't reveal like the data, the safety labs, the lab records from the, you know, the lab itself, which could help triangulate if it did come from within the lab. Um, you know, they did partner with the World Health Organization to kind of do an investigation, but, you know, with very strict parameters, very strict control. And even as the World Health Organization released it, they said they want more openness and cooperation from the Chinese government. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's, also, it's also the case that it is entirely possible that they themselves don't know. Yeah. It's, it's not, I mean, it is sort of, um, it is, uh, uh, let, let's take one hypothetical that um, research scientist is just kind of un, uncare, you know, uh, makes a mistake and gets infected and then, you know, doesn't know it and then spreads it outside the lab, you know, through normal just breathing and stuff like that. Um, that can happen. Now, it should be the case that, you know, if that is the case, it should be the case that they have lab samples there that look a lot like COVID, right? In their in their, um, in their, uh, uh, you know, samples and stuff like that. But again, 
I, I, I think it is, it, it is, it is good to know that it is quite possible that this did happen, and the Chinese themselves aren't sure whether it happened or not, and they probably don't want to know because it's obviously really bad if the, if 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 this was due to their negligence. So there's a lot there's a you know there's a lot of possibilities. Yeah, and 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 for everything I have said, it is absolutely true that Chinese government has been totally not forthcoming about this. There is no doubt about that at all. And that has been something that all of the relevant entities have been saying since the beginning. You know, unlikely, but it sure would be helpful if if the Chinese government would would be open and let people, you know, investigate what happened. Yeah. So so the other question again, something completely different. Uh this is from Zach. Why do you think the Justice Department is dragging its feet with releasing uh, various memos associated with the Mueller report. I would have thought this is a no-brainer and shines some much-needed light on what looks to be an entirely corrupt process. So the context here is that um, this watchdog organization sued a while ago to try to get their hands on some documents that kind of uh, were in the universe of uh the Mueller report, Barr's response to the Mueller report, and Barr's decision not to pursue criminal charges against Trump. Uh, that's kind of now narrowed down to a couple specific documents. But the one that we're talking about is a memo from the Office of Legal Counsel, which Barr says he used to come to his decision to not pursue criminal charges against Trump. Um, but then there's a federal judge in D.C., Judge Amy Berman Jackson, who this week absolutely excoriated the Justice Department because she she read that memo over DOJ objections and basically said this memo, which Barr kind of presented as this like neutral document that helped him reach his decision, was crafted as part of Barr's attempt to deal with the Mueller report and to, you know, kind of make a PR campaign around it that that helps him say, no, we're not going to pursue charges. Mueller didn't find enough and didn't get enough. Um, but now, so she ordered the full release of it, the whole memo. And the Biden DOJ is fighting that decision, appealing her decision. They released a part of the memo, but, you know, not, not really enough to get into all the meat of it um, and are saying, basically are taking the stance that the DOJ should kind of has privilege, deliberative process privilege, it's called here. They don't have to release these documents. Their internal deliberation should be allowed to be private. So now we're in this kind of weird position where they're defending um, the privacy of basically the Trump DOJ, but as a side effect, you know, might be helping shroud some some deep corruption in the decision not to prosecute Trump. Yeah, I think you know, this question, it's a good question, but I think it's one that we can dispatch relatively easily. And that's what Kate just said, that that you are always going to have institutional prerogatives that the incumbents, whether, you know, incumbent president, incumbent attorney general are going to be very solicitous of, even if it is uh, getting in the way of revealing information of bad acts or of you know, former attorney ge attorneys general, former presidents who the current folks don't like and think we're doing bad things. So I don't think I, I think the one thing we can be clear about this is there's really no need to you know, this may be a good or bad decision, but there's no need to think that there's something fishy going on. Like, you know, why would the why would the Biden DOJ be covering for Trump their um, institutional prerogatives? 
the DOJ in general under anybody's management wants to be protective of its future rights to say, hey, our decision making is our decision making. You can't, we, we don't have to tell you the, the innards of how we make decisions. So I, in that sense, I think it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty clear cut. There's obviously potentially a lot of reasons um, that, that the current crew should lean in the other direction. And there are different ways they can potentially do that. They don't want to be forced by a federal judge. But I don't think there's any question. That's the reason why. Right. There are institutional prerogatives that go beyond the specifics of Bill Barr or Mueller or any of those other folks who are doing stuff the last four or five years. I do think it sucks just unrelated to whatever kind of institutional reason they have. And, you know, every administration doesn't want any strictures put upon the power of, you know, the executive branch in other in any way. But I just I think the argument that there's quite a lot of public interest in what exactly happened here is high. And, you know, the risk also the chance that putting more information out like this memo could return scrutiny to this case, you know, now that, you know, Trump is not in office anymore. So at least the one kind of Mueller's, you know, dedication to the old OLC precedent that you can't um, prosecute a sitting president doesn't apply as much anymore. But, you know, this was just a case where Barr just, you know, acted like Trump's personal attorney. He went out of his way to undermine Mueller, to spin his findings and to feed the public just, you know, something that was not true. And because of that, I think a lot of Mueller's report has been spun in yeah, people's never really brain. Kind of fully appreciate. Yeah, yeah. It never no, hit I think all I, the way. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think that, and one thing, and this is something that I, I'd be curious to you sort of, uh, the, you know, executive branch lawyer types uh, think of this, that it's one thing to say, we don't want to be compelled by a federal judge. That's a certain kind of thing. But there are other contexts when you can, when a, when the federal government can on its own voluntarily, not under any kind of compulsion for different rationales, publicize information. And so I don't know, um, you know, I, I've been pushing for, for months or years now of having kind of like a, basically a commission, right? Uh, some of the kind of truth and reconciliation commission to kind of, to, to unwind all this Trump era stuff. Um, I, I'm curious whether there are ways for the administration to do things like that without setting precedents that come via a, you know, compulsory judicial process. Maybe uh, we need to finish up now, but maybe if you're listening, if you're a, uh, you know, if you're the kind of lawyer that deals with, you know, uh, executive branch jurisprudence and, and, and this isn't FOIA, but, you know, FOIA and, and all these kind of things, let us know. Let us know if there's, if, if, if there is a way to kind of clean house without, without, um, without creating the kinds of, uh, precedents that that any any current management of the executive branch is going to resist. Uh, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, New Orleans style cold brew ice coffee. Great stuff. If you're ready to give it a try, you can get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Remember, reach us with questions and, and comments at yes. talk at talkingpointsmemo.com. Yeah, questions have been great. So keep them really coming. Really great. Okay. All See right, you next later. week. <laughs>